Well, as you know, we have uh, Thanksgiving coming up, and um, oh, by the way, the verses are up there. We're actually going to start at Ephesians chapter four, verse twenty. For those of you who are who want to know where we're going to where we're going here, and um, but I trust that most of you are going to have Thanksgiving dinner, and most of the time that involves turkey, right? So a few years ago, someone asked some a group of children, you know, how do you prepare? A Thanksgiving turkey. And so these were just a couple of the responses that this inquirer got. Ways to prepare your turkey from children. This is uh, a kid named Johnny, a young man named Johnny. And he said, go to the grocery store and pick out two dozen turkeys. (laughs) Then pay for them because you don't want to eat stolen turkeys. When they are done cooking, you take them out of the oven. Then you turn off the oven so you don't start a fire. I think there's a backstory to that kid's answer. Jose, age 11, said, first you shoot the turkey. <laughs> Bam! Then you take the turkey and put him, and follow, follow me here, then you take the turkey and you put him in a good lawnmower. Huh? And you turn it on so that you can take the feathers off. It makes perfect sense, you adults. Jose reports that this is the easiest way to do it. And then another little boy said this. He said, the way I would cook a turkey is first, you go to a farm and chase one down. After the turkey and me ran for a long time, we would both be tired and thirsty. The turkey would go and then get a drink. (laughs) And while it was doing so, I would creep up closer and closer behind it. I would then get a rock and hit him with it to make him a little calmer. I think this little boy is in prison now. But anyway, (laughs) it's just fun to see how kids answer questions, right? So you and I might be tempted to think that giving thanks is just a seasonal thing. But I want to tell you today that it is by far one of the most God-glorifying and healthy things that we could ever possibly do, giving thanks. Having a grateful attitude is the best replacement that we could ever come up with for any negative behavior or thoughts. Two of our greatest enemies are anger and anxiety. And giving thanks is the antidote for both of them, which I will show you today. I hope I'll show you that today. Men tend to suffer the most with anger and women more so with anxiety, but there's still plenty of representation with the opposite gender. In both of these tendencies, anger and anxiety. So let's start with anger and a host of associated negative behavior. So what I want to do is just show you briefly some verses in Ephesians chapter four to see the pattern and the progression of Paul of the Apostle Paul's thoughts. So in Ephesians chapter four, starting at verse 20 through 24, it says this. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth That is in Jesus. 
you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And so this is the same pattern that Paul uses in most of his epistles, where he doesn't just tell the readers to stay, stop doing this and start doing this. What he does is he backs up a little bit and he reminds us, he reminds the reader of his new position in Christ. And so verse 22 reminds the reader that you have already, and that's in past tense, you have already taken off your old man or your old self, meaning that is your old identity, and that is no longer who you are. Then jumping to verse 24, that is already past tense. You have what you've done since you've taken off your old, and it's kind of like putting clothes on, you have put on the new man. And that is a metaphor for our salvation. That you and I, if we've already placed our faith alone in Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sin, we are no longer who we once were. We're somebody different. The moment that we placed our faith, our spirits are ignited with life for the first time in our existence, and so we're alive spiritually. We're given life. So our old self is gone. That is crucified with Christ, according to Galatians 2.20. And our new self is born again. Verse 23 gives us the present tense. Verse 23 says that currently your minds are in the process of being renewed, meaning you're getting rid of the false information that you once believed to be true, and you are taking on new information. You see, growing in the Christian faith isn't just learning new things. It is also, with just as much importance, the process of getting rid of the old. So your minds are in the process of renewal. So your old self is gone. Your new self is here. And now let me talk to you, now that I've reminded you of that, and you're going to see that again in a few verses. And he does this in almost all of his epistles. That same pattern takes place. He doesn't just say, stop doing this and start doing this. He reminds us who we are. He reminds us of our identity and what we think. You see, the Bible is not so much behavioral, it's cognitive. It tells us, as a man thinks, so he is. Proverbs teaches us. So a lot depends upon your understanding of a situation. Is that understanding humanistic or is that understanding biblical and if it's humanistic get rid of it and then take on this new important accurate truthful information and allow that to dominate your thought life and the way you make decisions and the way you respond to people so ephesians 4 20 through 24 reminds us simply of our position in christ then he goes on and he talks about a whole mess of different types of behaviors So let's look at verses 24 or 25 through the end of the chapter. And so in verse 25, Paul writes to the Ephesians, he says, therefore, see, as a result, therefore, that's what a therefore is there for. It's showing a result. Therefore, now that I've reminded you of your new identity in Christ, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For we are all members of one body, and your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He has been stealing, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, 
doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful or helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So what what does this mean? Well, he's basically doing three things. And we just have three neat categories as we look at verses 25 through 31 in Ephesians 4. He's saying, the second column, don't do these things now that I've reminded you of your identity. Because if you do those things, they are not in congruity with your identity. You're being hypocritical. You're being opposite of who you are. So don't do these things. Don't lie. Instead, do column three. Be truthful. And then he also provides a rationale, a a means, a reason for a change of behavior. This is so important because the Bible, again, it's not just behaviorism. It's not, okay, now that you're a Christian, start being a nice person. The Bible also tells you why and how. And that's really important to successful transformation, discipleship, and walking with Christ. So don't lie. Instead, be truthful. Why? Well, because we're one body. So if you lie to one another, that's a, a causes of uh, division in the body. So since we are one body in Christ, therefore, we should tell each other the truth. And he says elsewhere in Ephesians, speak that truth in love, by the way, too. So it's not just the content of your words. It's also how you communicate the words as well. Because your body language and tone of voice contribute just as much weight to a conversation as the content of the words. And so therefore, do not lie, but rather be truthful. So, so don't do this. Don't sin when you're angry. But instead... Make sure that your anger is righteous indignation. So there is anger and then there is raging, wrathful anger. All right. So there is a small category. Most of the time we show anger, it's because that we're being selfish and we're frustrated because something's blocking our goal. But then there's also the category of righteous indignation. Is there, are there any examples of righteous indignation in Scripture? Yes. Two examples of our own Savior who visited the temple complex and he saw that there were money changers there in the temple. And it was important, the money changers had an important job because in order to pay your annual temple tax, you had to have the right denomination of coinage to be able to pay that important tax. So that's why the money changers were there. So it's not wrong that they were there so much, but they were charging exorbitant rates for their work in changing money into proper coinage. That is what Jesus got upset about. And so what did he do? He overturned the tables. And you might say, well, Jesus, is he a rageaholic? No, he's not. I believe that Jesus was in perfect control when he chose to overturn those tables, he may have even said to himself, okay, I'm going to get angry now and I'm going to overturn those tables 
to make a dramatic statement because what these people are doing in my father's house, these people who have turned it into a den of thieves, is the complete opposite of my father's intention. The reason why he formulated the temple and sacrificial system is so that the people under the old covenant would have a means by which they could communicate with God, experience God, and also hear the will of God. That's the purpose of the temple and sacrificial system. But what was taking place is that these people were turning it into an opportunity for gross profit. And so Jesus got angry. And the reason why he got angry was proper. It was righteous anger that Jesus expressed on those days. And so he overturned the tables. So there is a category of righteous indignation. Jesus got nothing out of it. It was not a selfish thing. He wasn't angry because his goal was being blocked. He was angry because his father's goal, his father's really good and wholesome goal was being blocked by these profiteers. So do not sin when you're angry. Rather, have righteous indignation. Otherwise, the devil will get a foothold onto you. He will have his grappling hooks into you if you allow yourself to be angry for your own selfish desires. Don't steal, but rather work so that you can give. Don't speak evil words, rather speak the truth. Otherwise, you will grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, do not hold on to bitterness, rage, and anger, but rather be kind and compassionate. Why? Well, because you've been forgiven. So you and I are actually, whether we know it or not, are actually PhDs in forgiveness. Why? Well, because we have been forgiven so very much. Amen? We have been forgiven so very much. Amen? Yes. And so therefore, it is not a reasonable thing for us to not forgive other people because we have been forgiven so very much. So, but, but, but bitterness is such a temptation to hold on to that bitterness. I remember one of our former elders, his name was Harold Anders, and I remember we were eldering together, and we were talking about somebody who wouldn't forgive somebody else, and I still remember Harold's words like they were yesterday, and he said, they just won't let it go. And I go, you're right, they just won't let it go. And that's really what forgiveness is. It's letting it go. It's taking on the burden yourself, um, or the loss yourself, so that way you can free yourself up from the temptation to be bitter. And you've released that other person from their obligation as well. It's one of the healthiest things that a Christian can do. And you and I are the recipients of, of, great, of great forgiveness. And so Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 20, 31, rather, they give a list. And I want to put it all together here with this chart that's on the screen. That this is a list. That second column is a list of self-centered behaviors that all try to gain something or desperately hold on to something that they perceive that they need. So, Paul in verses 25 through 30 
too, is down here kind of in the muck talking about those behaviors and their replacement that should characterize our lives. But then he moves up. He moves up on the mountain and gives us a perspective of God. Look what he says in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. He says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Here's a summary of those two verses. What should we do? Well, copy God. Be imitators of him. It's like, wow, that's a, that's a, that is a big charge. Copy God. Is it possible to copy God? Yes. God's communicable attributes are copyable by us. In other words, we can be truthful. God is truthful. We can be loving. God is loving. We can be merciful because God is merciful. We can be gracious because God is gracious. We can be forgiving because God is forgiving as well. And so there are some things, there are some attributes or characteristics of our God that you and I can actually copy. But of course, there are some incommunicable attributes. Well, all of the incommunicable attributes, none of those could we possibly copy. You and I cannot be all-knowing. We cannot be ever-present. You and I can be everlasting, but we're not eternal. God has no beginning and no end. You and I had a beginning, but you and I, this blows my mind, we actually have no end. Think about that for a while. And so we can copy God. Uh, and it's we can do it because he is just so attractive to you. He's loving. Oh, God, my prayer is, God, uh, show me your love. God, keep loving me. Allow me to know it, but also, God, allow me to sense that love, too. Because that is the greatest motivator ever to change. And so copy God, since you are dearly beloved children, not just children, but your dearly beloved children as well. Live a life of love. What does the Bible teach about love? It's totally opposite of what the world teaches about love. The world teaches that love is conditional, that love is only sensual. Uh, love is convenience. The Bible teaches just the opposite, that love is faithful, loyal, loving kindness. It is the Hesed love that Ruth had for Naomi. That faithful, loyal, loving kindness. It's agape love in the New Testament. It's unconditional love. Love that is not deserved, but given anyway. Powerful, life-changing, life-altering stuff. So live a life of love. Don't be like all those negative characteristics of the previous seven or eight verses. Rather, Be loving. Be other-centered. And that is a great working definition of love. Other-centered benevolence. That you want good things to happen to that other person. And Jesus told us something that seems to be impossible. He He says, even the pagans love those who love them, but love your enemies. How can I possibly love those who wish me ill? We can wish them good things. So we are called to love our enemies. So it's possible to actually love our enemies. 
So live a life of love as Christ loved and sacrificed for us. God, you want us to be loving. You, you need to show us how. And you also need to give us the enablement to do that. And Jesus did exactly both. He's the ultimate example. And he's also the ultimate enabling power to show us what true love is. So that way, that love can change our hearts and our lives as well. So we can copy God's communicable attributes. So what Paul is doing, the end part of chapter 4, is he's down here in the weeds, the muck and the mire, talking about negative behavior. And then he comes up in chapter 5, and those, of course, chapters are artificial breaks because it's really one progressive movement here of his thoughts and what he writes and then chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 we're up here showing us God's influence and changing us from the inside out and making us more loving because he has sacrificed so much for us and then he begins to land the plane in verses 3 and 4 look what verses 3 and 4 say in chapter 5 and he says but among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather, and we arrive at our conclusion, but rather thanksgiving. So what's going on here in these two relatively simple verses? He starts here in the end part of chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He's up here with a sublime perspective of God and his influence on our perspective of love and an application of love. And now he's landing the plane and he starts to talk more about negative behaviors. And he talks about some of the most unpleasant ones that we could ever possibly come up with. He uses the term immorality. He uses the Greek word pornea, where we get pornography from. And the Greek word for pornea, that highlights several different perversions. Fornication, sex before marriage, adultery, sex outside of heterosexual monogamy, homosexuality, bestiality, necrophilia, all of those perversions are included in this one catch-all word, pornea. And so that immorality should not characterize the Christian experience. You also should not be greedy either. Um, And you should not be coveting other people's possessions and other people's wives or family members. Remember now the context here of what who Paul is communicating to. He's talking to a bunch of former pagans in a powerful and wealthy city, the city of Ephesus. There were some Jews there too, and they were not former pagans. They were a small minority. But then most of these Gentiles who composed the Ephesian church were former pagans who used to go over to the temple of Diana or Artemis, same thing, and they would participate in the temple prostitution and other forms of immorality as well. So he was confronting these former pagans to make sure that their behavior was distinct from that of the world around them. And so that was his point. 
in bringing out these particular unpleasant behaviors of immorality and greed as well. In addition, there is obscenity, filthy language, which would, which would be cursing. Someone provided this definition of cursing. That cursing is the way that simple-minded people show emphasis. <laughs> Foolish and crude talk, they show what? Well, they show a lack of intelligence because you can't articulate what you want to communicate in any other way than using a bunch of four-letter words. So it shows a limited vocabulary. And frequently those words are used over and over and over and over again. Have you picked up on that recently? And so foolish and crude talk show anger. All of these sins, all of these sins that are listed in the end part of chapter 4 and now here in verses 3 and 4, every one of these sins show aggressive, hostile, self-centered, prideful behavior. They all want something and they demand that it be delivered to them yesterday. So what does he say to do? Well, that's there's a deficit of that. Immorality, impurity, and greed, he didn't say any behavior to replace those things with. Hmm. But, okay, obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, (laughs) there's only one. Happy Thanksgiving. (laughs) The antidote to all of this self-centered, prideful, aggressive, hostile behavior, if you had to summarize it in one word, it would be Thanksgiving. We need to show gratitude. That is the antidote to all of these hostile behaviors. See, you see, this is also very, very New Testament. He does the same thing in Colossians chapter 3. Don't read it now because you're listening to a sermon. Don't look at Colossians chapter 3. I forbid you, whatever you do right now, do not turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Stay here in Ephesians chapter 5, okay? That's your homework for tonight, that you are to read Colossians chapter 3, make observations, and then you realize how close Colossians chapter 3 is to Ephesians 4 and 5. Same writer, different destination, but yet very similar content. And so what does he do here? Well, you and I sin, you and I do that long list of sins in Ephesians 4 and 5, because what we're trying to do is we are trying to meet a need. See, sin has a certain twisted logic to it. Let me repeat that because the kids are coming in. Some of you got sidetracked, distracted. Sin has a certain twisted logic to it. That doesn't justify it. But every one of our sins is trying to meet a goal. It's trying to meet a need. And I would submit to you that the needs are actually legitimate, but the means by which we try to meet those needs are illegitimate and self-destructive. So you and I can reverse engineer our sin to see why are we trying to sin in the first place? What need are we trying to meet? For example, 
The reason why we're tempted to gossip and slander is simply because we want to bring somebody else down so that way we feel more important. Is it wrong to feel valuable and important? No. But that tactic is definitely wrong. But the goal is not wrong. You and I lie. I lied to my mother about stealing the cookie from the cookie jar. Why did I do that? It's because I wanted to feel secure. I also wanted the great feeling of what it was like to eat that chocolate chip cookie. But then I also wanted to be protected from being spanked by my mother if I had stolen the cookie from the cookie jar. Is it wrong to feel secure, to want to feel safe and secure and not be spanked? Of course it is. It's not wrong at all. But it's wrong to steal the cookie and then subsequently lie about it as well. What about immorality, all forms of immorality? What's the goal there? The goal there is intimacy. Is it wrong to want intimacy with another person? No, it's not wrong. But the means by which that goal is attempted is definitely self-destructive and wrong. Is um, What about bitterness, holding on to something and not letting it go? What's the goal in being bitter? The goal in being bitter is that we want to feel vindicated and justified. And we're looking for an opportunity to make sure that everybody in our world understands that we were right and that perpetrator who hurt me is wrong. So that way, I will be shown to be justified and vindicated. Is it wrong to want to feel vindicated and justified? Absolutely not. In fact, that is the primary result of our salvation, that we are justified before God because Jesus has taken on our sin. So it's not wrong to feel justified, but it is wrong to feel bitterness and to enter into that self-destructive behavior. Why do people use drugs and alcohol? Well, because they want to feel relief from the pain And they want peace. Is it wrong to want to feel peaceful? Absolutely not. But is it wrong to self-medicate yourself? Yes, that is destructive as well. What about greed? Why are we so tempted to gather as much money and, and possessions as possible? Why is why we cry out and say, just one more dollar, one more shrinking dollar, that's all I need. And tomorrow, it'll be the same clarion cry, one more. Why do we do Well, because we want to feel secure, we want to feel fulfilled. Is it wrong to want to feel secure and fulfilled? Absolutely not. See, all of these needs, we're needy people. We are desperately needy people. And as we reverse engineer our sin, we'll see that the means by which we try to achieve those legitimate goals, it's just all, they're just all wrong. So what does the New Testament teach? Well, God's word to summarize this idea in Titus chapter 2 verse 12, it says it, meaning grace. And let me define what grace is here because that's a word that we throw around a lot, but we have to define our terms so that way we're on the same page. God's grace is unmerited favor. It's his gifts to you. Salvation is the primary one. But then there's just a multitude of so many other graces. 
So grace or it, God's graces, his gifts to you. Those are the things that teach us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. You see, God doesn't say give into it and God doesn't say stuff it. God, what does he say? He says, replace it. Replace the need to sin, or I should say, the perceived need to sin in order to meet that legitimate need. And so God gives us his graces in order to meet all of our legitimate needs. For the Christian, all of our needs are met. And so, therefore, be thankful. Make it your life's goal, your daily work, to comb through the pages of Scripture and understand and apprehend His graces so that way your needs are met, so that way sin itself ultimately and progressively becomes obsolete and antiquated and totally unnecessary. That is the New Testament pattern in defeating sin. It is not lifestyle legalism, and it is also not licentiousness. It is replacement. It is to supplant the very need to sin in the first place. And gratitude is a key element in that formula. Gratitude is the continual acknowledgement of God's answers, solutions, and provisions. And so therefore, be thankful. Express your gratitude for the graces that you have already received, the ones that you are in the current process of receiving, and also the ones that you will get in the future. That's the New Testament pattern. That is rarely taught, and that's a shame. This has to become part and parcel of our Christian experience. So reverse engineer your sin. I trust that all of you are not experiencing temptation in every sin. But pick the ones out that continually haunt you and and plague you and do some reverse engineering on your sin and find out the solution and then follow that pattern. That's anger. But then if you just turn a few pages to the right, you'll come to another short epistle of Paul's. It is Philippians chapter Four, and we're only going to look at two verses. Worry is the greatest thief of joy. Someone has said that ulcers are caused by not what we eat, but rather what is eating you. Most are not addicted to alcohol or drugs, but most people are addicted to worry. And we excuse worry because we think it's not that bad. Or is it? It kind of almost has the category of an acceptable sin. Worry comes from the old English word to strangle. And that's no coincidence. It feels like you're being strangled. It has physical effects on our digestion. It causes headaches. It hurts our back as our muscles tense up and it ruins our concentration. Worry, my friends, is when we want to find a solution and manage what we can't even influence and fret over things that probably will never even happen. One group made a 
some did a study of the content of the things that we worry about. And here are the results. 40% of the things that we worry about will never, ever happen. 30% of the things that we worry about are about the past that cannot be changed. 12% of the things that we worry about are about criticism by other people that are is mostly untrue. 10% of the content of that which we worry about is about our health which parenthetically gets worse with stress. 8% of what we worry about are real problems that we'll probably have to face at some time in the future. So it's only 8%. You can't change the past, but you can ruin a perfectly good present by worrying about the future. If you want to test your memory, try to remember what you worried about a year ago. I did that one time, a really long time ago. I, you know, I used to be a worrywart, I've told you that. And so what I did was I wrote down, I think it was like two or three things that I was worrying about that were just plaguing me. I took the little piece of paper, put it in an envelope, and sealed it, and then put it in the top drawer on my desk. Anyway, I forgot about it, and I found it about probably 10 or 15 years later. That shows you how often I clean out my desk. I have notes from seminary from where I graduated in 1991 that I still have not filed and put away. But it's all in my closet. You see, my office looks pretty neat, but it's all stuffed in my closet. So anyway, back to the little note. The little note, I I pulled it out. I said, oh, I remember this. And I think it had the year on it, whatever. I think it was in the previous century, you know. So opened it up. The paper was brittle and yellow and falling apart in my hands. And I just laughed. I said, I can't believe I worried about these things. But yet, we expend so much time, so much energy, and we keep doing the same thing over and over again, and we expect different results, which is, as you know, the definition of insanity. But we still worry. Why we do it? Well, because it's what we know. It's the well-worn pattern in the grooves of our mind. We keep doing the same thing over and over again, unless that pattern is shattered. You see, worry is really an attempt to control. Its source is ultimately pride. And then we say, just stop worrying. But to stop worrying creates a vacuum that will eventually be filled again by what? Worry. I remember when I was in the fourth grade and I had a a, a part in a play, I forget what it was, but I had a few lines that I had to recite, and I, and I was just, I, did, I hated getting in front of people and, and speaking. <laughs> and so how did I become, I don't know how I became a pastor, but anyway, here I am. But that, that day, I remember that morning, I said to my mother, Mom, as, as my hands were like dripping sweat, my palms were like, Mom, I, I have to stand in front of the entire fourth grade and recite from memory my part in this play. And you know what she said to me? She said words of wisdom. She said, don't worry. (sighs) That did not help. But the New Testament doesn't just tell us not to worry. It says that, but then it tells us what we should replace it with. Look what Philippians 4, 6 says. It says, do not be anxious about anything... 
but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And so, therefore, we should take this mostly inner communication that we have, and it is just that, internal communication. We're really good at that. You've heard me say this before. 1,700 words a minute that we're capable of thinking. That's a lot of reinforcement on negative patterns. Also positive patterns, too. But negative patterns. Worry. It's a well-worn pattern in the grooves of our mind. We keep doing the same thing over and over again. And that pattern has to be shattered. And it cannot be shattered by a vacuum. Something has to fill it. Paul gives us that answer. He says it's prayer, which is probably mostly also internal communication, but the communication goes past the ceiling and the roof to God. Okay, Some some of us maybe speak our prayers out verbally. I don't. I pray them all internally. God hears it. We know he can hear it. And so I'm replacing an internal communication with more internal communication but it is directed toward not just me, myself, and I. It's, it's directed to God. And it's positive, it's accurate, and it's healthy. So replace it with prayer. But he gives a little, he gives some specifics about what types of prayer, but in everything by prayer and petition with, there it is again. I was at the Ronald Reagan Library this past week. There you go again, he said to Jimmy Carter in 1984. There you go again. Everybody who's over 50 is like chuckling a little bit. Everybody under 50 is like, what is he talking about? But anyway, he repeats it. He repeats it. There's Thanksgiving again. Thanksgiving. Present your requests to God with this attitude of thanksgiving. Expressing gratitude. That is what is going to replace this tendency and this proclivity to worry and wring our hands. First Thessalonians 5.18 says, give thanks in all circumstances. Why? Well, because gratitude is good for us. God doesn't need your thanks. If he doesn't get it, it won't ruin his day. But do it because it's good for you and it also happens to glorify him. When we communicate that thanksgiving to other people, we think we are owed what we have. But from the starting point, you and I are owed nothing but hell. So I believe in a concept called zero based thanksgiving. It's like zero based budgeting when you start from zero and then you add things on that you need to spend money on. And zero based thanksgiving starts right at the right at the base. It's like, wait a minute. Nothing's cake. It's all icing on the cake. It's all grace. It's all unmerited favor. And so we should express our thanksgiving to God. And then when we turn from worry to prayer, God gives us peace. Look what verse 7 says. And it says, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so giving thanks defeats anxiety. And the anxiety is replaced with peace, calm. Not just the absence of conflict, but true peace is what you and I experience. Now, of course, we're already at peace with God since we've been reconciled to him. But that positional peace is transformed into experiential peace. 
That's the good news. Daniel, the prophet Daniel, gives us a wonderful illustration of peace through prayer. The king announced that none, that none of his subjects could pray to anyone except the king. Daniel went into his room, opened windows, opened his windows, and he prayed. He prayed and gave his thanks before his God. Daniel was able to spend the night with the lions in perfect peace, while the king in the palace couldn't sleep a wink. The peace surpasses all human understanding. I don't want you to miss this point. What is human understanding? Human understanding is that our positive feelings are determined by positive circumstances outwardly. So if things are going really well in my world, then I'll have peace. But this type of peace, this peace, will surpass all human understanding. Because where did Paul write this? Paul was in prison when he wrote this. Paul should not have been in peace in his mind. He should have been in turmoil from a worldly sense. But yet he had a peace that surpasses that human perspective or that human understanding. Gratitude leads us in a healthy and beneficial thought pattern. Matthew Henry, the Bible commentator, he gave a prayer of thanks on the night that he was robbed. This is what Matthew Henry wrote. He said, I thank thee first because I was never robbed before. Secondly, because although they took my belongings, they did not take my life. Thirdly, although they took everything I had, it wasn't much. <laughs> and fourth, because it was I who was robbed, not I who robbed. My friends, anger and anxiety, we have a choice a hundred times a day. We have a choice to go there and be angry and show wrath and frustration, to push our way forward. To ruin the relationships that are precious to us. We have a choice to be angry. We have a choice also to be anxious and concerned and worry. Uh, we could give in and do those things. Or we could choose to like oh, just suppress it all in. But to understand that those two behaviors and all of those other negative behaviors that Paul lists, but to understand that now they are no longer necessary on our quest to have legitimate needs met. To understand from a New Testament perspective that those behaviors are now declared obsolete and antiquated. That is by far the best possible thing that we could learn today. That those behaviors are no longer necessary, but they are obsolete, antiquated, and no longer fit us. And so, with that, I say, Happy Thanksgiving.
Let's pray together. Father, we come before you and thank you for who you are and who you're making us into being. Lord, we pray that this will be a great Thanksgiving to recognize that Thanksgiving is truly the antidote for so much negativity, even just in our own minds, and that it can be cleansed and purged of all of that destructive behavior and thoughts. And so, Father, I pray that we will have victory over it and we'll see that anger and anxiety are not the way to go anymore. It's a choice now. And I pray that we will choose the right way. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand as we join our voices and respond together.